are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Let's write a book. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? We're going to run into the streets or anything. 
Um, so one of the, the premises of the book is that we're living in a period where we're seeing uh, almost the elevation of the city-state and the diminishment of the nation-state simultaneously. And these are structural changes. I mean, if you wake up in the U.S. and you're, you, know, you get your morning onslaught of whatever the president is tweeted about, you actually think that the center of this country is the White House and is Washington. But we're a republic, and we're a distributed, decentralized republic. And so, so much of what is happening here, but our premises throughout the world, uh, is about this incredible period of transition, where the 20th century very much was about the nation state, and the 21st century is about the city state. And that's because cities, as we know, uh, are really at the center of innovation and productivity. Uh, they are the trading leads all over the world. Um, if they do their job well, which not quite doing in the United States right now and very many other places, economic opportunity, the potential for social mobility is enhanced. They obviously are on the front lines of demographic change. The country will be majority minority by the mid-2040s. Cities are already there to a large extent. And if we grow our cities smartly and grow our metropolitan areas smartly, it's part of the response to climate change. Uh, because of buildings, transport, energy. Well, where does that all come together in our cities? So what we said in this book was that responsibility for sure, but power is drifting downwards in the United States and around the world, from the nation state to the city state. And if you think about the 20th century, and we and think about how we thought about problem solving, it was very much top-down, driven by the national government, and driven by specialized experts. You had a transportation problem, you'd go find the Department of Transportation, what they would generally tell you is build a road or a beltway or something else. If you had a housing problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 21st century is more bottom-up. It's multi-sector, particularly in the United States, which is as much private-public as public-private. Uh, and it's interdisciplinary. If you have a transportation problem, the solution may be found in where you locate your housing, or maybe a technological solution, congestion pricing, and so forth. So we think this is not a cyclical event because of who we elect to be president or who controls the House and the Senate. These are structural trends that are in play in the world. The city-state is really the first form of governance the nation state is a relatively recent phenomenon uh, and will obviously continue to play a role. But we think this is a structural change in society. So new localism, you got to name it, you know, you always have to label stuff. Actually, Tony Blair labeled something to uh, new localism when he was the prime minister of Britain. I don't think he really meant it, it just seemed like a good phrase. Um, uh, you can tweet that if you want, but it's okay. Uh, we, we think in the United States in particular, at this particular moment, uh, given the, the, the size and scale of our challenges, and given the fact that the national government, you know, like Elvis, has left the building, um, we need to perfect a new kind of philosophy and practice of problem solving. Um, and whether it's climate, or whether it's economic insecurity, or whether it's transport, uh, or whether it's any number of issues, opioid, healthcare, homelessness, we can just go issue by issue by issue. The problem solving 
the design, financing, and delivery of solutions is very much going to be coming from our cities. So Jeremy and I basically, you know, drunk our own Kool-Aid. That's what you do when you write a book, or else you just stop and move on to other things. Um, and what we were trying to sort out is if you live in an urban age, if you live in a metropolitan century, what you look for are norms and models. You're not waiting for Godot. You're not waiting for the perfect law to be enacted or the regulation to be promulgated from on high the national government. You're looking for smart norms and models that other cities have invented that you could adapt to your own place. So we went looking for growth models, governance structures and financial tools that have been invented mostly in the United States and Europe and other mature economies that we could adapt. Um, we didn't look at everything, right? So this book was very much a focus on economy and higher economic development to a large extent. But over the last two years, um, so many people have reached out to me and, and Jeremy and said, you know, this actually applies to opioids, or applies to homeless, or applies to a whole set of issues that we hadn't really explored in the book, but um, it clearly resonated. So we went looking for cities. They were at the vanguard of growth, governance, and finance. Uh, we started with a list of 25, and we ended up with three. Um, so I'm going to talk about Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, and Copenhagen, and then really think about how that applies to Baltimore at this uh, period of your evolution. So how many people have been to Pittsburgh? Probably just about everyone in the room. I mean, actually a, a gorgeous city, right? Confluence of two rivers. Uh, my father's sister married a guy from Steubenville, Ohio, uh, which was part of the steel supply chain. Uh, I used to go to Pittsburgh. I used to be brought by, by my parents to JFK Airport, put on a plane to Pittsburgh, and just by myself, remember there was no TSA, and then my aunt would pick me up at the other side, and I would spend my entire summer in Steubenville, Ohio, which for me was like, like a whole nirvana, because they had Bob's Big Boy and McDonald's. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. We didn't have any of this stuff, frankly. So I was like, wow, everything I watch on television is in Steubenville, Ohio. I, I was very, very happy. And then we would go to Pittsburgh. You know, they had an amusement park and all the rest. Well, this is what Pittsburgh was like when, when I used to visit. You literally would go, you couldn't breathe for about a week. Um, the sky was orange or something. Um, because it was an incredibly productive uh, industrial center. And then overnight it disappeared. And what the book basically hypothesizes is that the rebirth of Pittsburgh actually started with the Three Mile Island disaster. Because Westinghouse owned this particular nuclear facility. And when the crisis hit, they began to sort through what, how much would it take to actually figure out what had happened, the extent of the damage, and then how are we going to clean this up? So they came up with all these, you know, very expensive engineering solutions, which would have bankrupted the company. Eventually, they found this guy sitting on top of this contraption. God knows what the contraption is, um, Red, Red Whitaker. He's one of the first roboticists in the United States or the world, Carnegie Mellon, and he and his children's crusade, young roboticists, graduate students in Carnegie Mellon, actually figured out, because they were working with early versions of autonomous vehicles, um, they, they could actually figure out the extent of the damage and have a cleanup uh, sort of strategy that would be a hell of a lot less money 
than what Westinghouse uh, was thinking about. Now, when Pittsburgh began to grow in the rubble uh, after the steel collapse, was a modern post-industrial economy centered around Carnegie Mellon, centered around the University of Pittsburgh, and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. This is a 21st century, naturally occurring innovation district, where place and proximity around advanced research institutions give faculty and researchers that, that ability to exchange ideas seamlessly and invent next generation technologies. And remember like 30 years ago, if you wanted to find uh, a hub of, of, of research, you would come to like this library, get in your car, drive 30 miles to some secret corporate campus where the motto is keep your secret secret, right? And every corporation or research institute was basically doing things in a siloed way. That is over. The way we invent, the way we um, basically chart the future is, is a collaborative <coughs> effort, which is revalued not just the Oakland district of Pittsburgh, but parts of, of this city. There are about 12 next generation technologies in the United States and around the world that within a relatively short period of time will generate about half of global GDP. Pittsburgh's in five of them. There are five of the 12, right? And just as Detroit was at the beginning of the auto revolution, uh, Pittsburgh is the beginning of this next generation uh, technology revolution, which means if they don't screw it up, right, um, they're going to be able to generate wealth uh, for their broader population. It's not going to be the same kind of jobs that were generated in the industrial age, but there are a lot of good science, technology, engineering, art, math, design jobs that don't necessarily require four-year degrees, but require credentials and skills. So, you know, Pittsburgh's a, a little bit of an it city, you know. Uh, it's an incredible culinary scene. Um, it's one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, but if you're a global technology company, whether you're coming out of Seattle, whether you're coming out of Silicon Valley, whether you're coming out of, of the Nordics, you need to be in Pittsburgh. You need to be near the secret sauce. Smart, talented people coming out of Carnegie Mellon and Pitt, the faculty, and this convergence of technologies and disciplines, which are highly concentrated in a very small place. So a city is different than a national government. A city has to think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. You have to think across silos, across stovepipes, and you have to take risks. You have to fail. You have to fail fast. You have to pick yourself up and do it again. Um, that's what cities are. That's why they're geared to a network center. What you learn from Pittsburgh is you need to go from a rust belt to a brain belt. Right? We're not, we're not going back. And Pittsburgh realized uh, early on in the 80s, through their philanthropies, the universities, their companies, the state government when it was functioning, not particularly functioning anymore, the national government when it was functioning, not particularly functioning anymore, that they needed to make the transition. So with other industrial cities in Northern Europe, they were able to chart a future. They did try to bring back the old manufacturer. Um, Pittsburgh still makes things. Uh, it makes different kind of things. If you ever really want to see the future, go visit one of these robotic firms on Robot Row uh, in, in Pittsburgh. It's remarkable what's going on there. It's like a playground for innovation, right? And it's happening in this very, very small geography. And philanthropy, 
in, in, in Pittsburgh. Whether it's the Heinz and Downs, whether it's Hillman, whether it's Mellon, uh, there's an enormous amount of old wealth in Pittsburgh that has been deployed to essentially build the next economy. So philanthropy does many things in the United States, particularly when Garland you know, goes on a frolic and detour. Um, but in Pittsburgh, they very much invested in centers of excellence and next generation te technology. No one knew what autonomous vehicles were. No one knew what robotics was. No one knew what artificial intelligence, machine learning. The philanthropies invested in this stuff, and they did it over decades with the national and state governments. That's Pittsburgh, right? It's a recipe. Indianapolis. How many people have been to Indianapolis? Okay, so quite a few. Um, so here's the story of Indianapolis in the 70s. Basically, anyone who get out of the core got it, right? Um, so, you know, the, the, the really great thing to do in Indianapolis was for men, I suppose, old men, to go down and take shotguns and shoot a pigeons, right? Now, Kurt Bonnegar, who was really one of the great uh, American novelists of the 20th century, actually grew up in, in Indianapolis and said it was the kind of place where he spent 364 days playing miniature golf and the last day he went to the Speedway. This was an incredibly <laughs> boring place. And so the corporations, the elected officials, great mayors, Dick Luger, uh, Bill Hudden, a really amazing group of mayors, uh, philanthropies, the Lilly Endowment, corporations like Lilly and Roche, they began to come together in the 70s and basically said, uh, we need to get our act together here because there's nothing happening in the core. Um, so they decided to be the amateur sports capital of the United States. And this is at a time when the national government was preparing for the Moscow Olympics. Obviously, we never went to the Moscow Olympics, but we were professionalizing um, the preparation for the Olympics. And Indianapolis basically said, we're going to own all this stuff. So they just started building a ton of sports facilities. Um, and, and they did it, in, usually, you know, starting with amateur sports, then this will, you know, this is going to hurt. They stole the Colts in the middle of the night in 1984. And then they stole the NCAA from Kansas City uh, in, the, in the 90s. They got really good at stealing stuff and stealing sports teams. Um, and at some point, um, as they were doing this in a very network way, the government, the private sector, the philanthropies, the university, they were all sitting together deciding which new sports thing we'll get into, uh, outside, I guess, of winter skiing or something. Um, they decided, you know, how, many, how much beer and hot dogs can you consume, right? This is not a high road economy. The jobs in the sports facilities are mostly low wage. So they said, we need to move from basketball to biotech. We need to basically take what we've learned about collaboration to compete and, and to basically compete for sports teams and apply that to the advanced economy. So they set up something called the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. And it's, it's governed by about 60 CEOs of the universities, the philanthropies, and the corporations. The government is not actually a part of it, the mayor, the governor. They, they relate to it. They're partners. And this group of CEOs sits several times a year, and they steer and steward 
the Indianapolis economy, and actually, increasingly, the entire economy of Indiana. What they realized early on was that Indiana was at the vanguard of medical devices and of next generation life sciences. So they began in Syriana a whole a set of initiatives capitalized by the private and civic sectors around research and innovation, around logistics, around workforce development, around commercialization and startup and scale ups. They began to basically make first central Indiana and then all of Indiana sort of a hub for life sciences. Uh, today, the, the number one exporter of life science products in the United States is California, not surprising. Number two is Indiana, right? And um, when Jeremy and I were doing work with Mayor Pete, who you may have heard of, uh, in South Bend, um, I remember visiting with him and with the, the, the leadership of Notre Dame, and they were very excited to tell us, you know, we're part of the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. And I said, well, that's interesting since you're in northwest Indiana. And they said, well, yeah, but we have data science here. And we have health tech. And we have biotech. And that relates to what's going on in Indianapolis. So these folks have been very smart to realize not just what's happening in their own city or metropolis. And Indianapolis, as you know, the city and the county consolidated back in 1969, but throughout the entire state. Um, they are unlocking a large amount of private and civic capital. Um, when we get to Q&A, I think we'll probably talk about this as a major part of what has to happen in the United States. The U.S. does not have a capital problem. We have an organizing problem. Most cities and metropolitan areas have large amounts of wealth, big university endowments, philanthropies, public pension funds, private pension funds, high net worth individuals, they tend to take their wealth and export it out, usually to Silicon Valley, Boston, or New York. Ross Baird is here. If you want to read the other great book from God, a couple of years ago, The Innovation Blind Spot, he's the author of that book. Um, what Indianapolis has done is unlock their wealth for local investment. In startups, in scale-ups, they build with private, civic, capital, the Indiana Biosciences Research Institute, and then drawing from what they had learned from stealing sports teams, they started stealing faculty from all over the world. So they're like the John Derringer of cities, just steal. Um, what's the lesson? Be an ecosystem rather than an ecosystem. When those 60 CEOs get in the room, they're obviously running major global corporations. The, the Lilly Endowment is worth about 13 billion, has about 13 billion in assets. They obviously are running serious institutions. But when they get in the room, it's the sandbox rule. We gotta play well together. And that's what they do in a very professional way. So they have perfected the mechanics of collaboration. They need to decide not to discuss. Think about that. They have all this capital. And every couple of months, they think about where we're going to deploy it in the service of our metropolitan economy, in partnership with government, in partnership with the public sector. And it just keeps getting better. I was on the phone with the head of the CICP a couple of days ago. He's had some questions for him. It's incredible what's happened in the last two or three years since we wrote this book. 
It just keeps going. It's like the hockey stick effect. Um, they worked at the district level, city level, metropolitan level, regional level, and throughout the entire state. It's, it's an incredibly collaborative effort across multiple sectors, and they are organizing private and civic wealth. Um, probably better than any other metropolitan area in the United States. Again, we don't have a capital problem. We have an organizing problem, right? And most, I mean, the biggest industry in most cities and metropolitan areas is the export of their own wealth to Silicon Valley. So every time everyone talks about Silicon Valley is so wealthy, and Boston is so wealthy, and New York is so wealthy, well, who do you think is funding those, you know, VC firms and wealth management firms and private equity firms and venture capital? It's coming from the heartland, and it's coming from other wealthy cities in the United States, whether it's legacy wealth or new wealth, right? I mean, think about it. We've, we've created a system of exporting capital all over the U.S. when a lot of very smart investments are local. Last piece, Copenhagen, Denmark. Who has been to Copenhagen? Okay, so these are the cyclists in the world. Um, <laughs> you know, Copenhagen um, is, is an absolutely remarkable place. Um, you know, it's, it's probably the third wealthiest city in the world. More than 50%, actually, of people bike to work or school. Think about that, because, you know, it's, it's northern Europe, so during the winters, it's, it's light out for about two hours a day. You know, it rains a lot. Um, it, it's, it's not the most hospitable climate. But they have basically built an infrastructure uh, around a different kind of living, and they are the first major city in the world that will get to zero carbon emissions by 2025. Wow. You know, most times when you talk, when you hear about climate deals, whether it's national politicians, whether it's mayors, they'll talk about, we're going to reduce, you know, uh, dirty fuels 80% by 2050. They're getting to zero carbon emissions by 2025. Here's the bottom line. Three decades ago, Copenhagen was Pittsburgh. I mean, it, its manufacturing had collapsed completely, right? The population had decamped for the suburbs. Um, the port of Copenhagen was dead because Malmo in southern Sweden was the new logistics hub of that part of the, of the world. And basically the city was, you know, on the brink of bankruptcy. So the national government uh, and the mayor at the time, and they were from different political parties. This is obviously impossible to imagine in the United States right now. Um, they were the red and blue team. And they came together and said, this is the capital of our country. We need to do something incredibly transformative to get us back on track, but we can't spend a crumb of taxes. Okay, let's go figure that one out, right? So they came up with this scheme of taking all their public corporations that owned a large amount of land along the harbor and owned all the land, the military basically owned the land between the airport and the downtown. And they said, we're going to take all these public corporations and all this land, and here's Orestad District is the area between the downtown and the airport and the harbor, including the North Harbor of Sweden is to the north of that. Um, is where all this is public land. 
right? And they said, we're going to take all our public assets and we're going to put it into one corporation, the Copenhagen City and Port Development Corporation. And we're going to basically tell them, regenerate these areas for the 21st century economy, mixed use, everything we would ever talk about, walkable, livable, you know, wired, connected, all everything that any urbanist would want. And then they would say, a portion of the value that we're going to generate through this regeneration, we're going to have to go to service the debt on a 21st century transit system because we don't, we can't tax our citizenry or on the brink of bankruptcy. So if you go to Copenhagen today, there is a world-class transit system, driverless transit, you know, autonomous transit vehicles, built, built with the revenues generated from the leasing of land along the harbor front, right? And then um, in this area between the downtown and the airport, right? Think about public wealth, right? What public asset corporations were able to achieve. So the former uh, mayor, Jonas Kramer Mickelson, who then became uh, the head of the Covenant City Development Corporation, said, you know, we're not here for the quick fix. We're here for the long haul, right? And we have to think about a system of constantly creating value, capturing value, and then deploying value for the public over the long haul. The U.S., when we think about public assets or public lands, we tend to say, well, we better sell them all fast, usually to cover a budget deficit or something else. These folks are thinking in 50 or 75 year terms. First thing you learn from Covenant is they know what the government owns. Right? That's a shocker. Um, and then they know the value of what the government owns. In the United States, because we have so much government, city, county, state, port authority, airport authority, redevelopment authority, um, you know, just keep it going, convention center authority, stadium authority, we have a lot of authorities in the U.S. that were created after the Second World War. So we have a lot of government. It's very fragmented, let alone in some parts of the country, not here, but in many parts of the country, sub suburban municipalities. I guarantee you, no one in the U.S. actually knows what the public owns, definitely doesn't know what the value of it is, and definitely doesn't think about the disposition of assets in a way that could add to long-term public benefit. They merge public entities. That ain't going to happen in the U.S. to a large extent. And they think about public-private partnership is not a transaction, but as an institution, right? In the U.S., we think about PPPs as maybe we can get the private sector to take over water or sewer or airports or whatever it is, tollways, right? In Northern Europe and Singapore uh, and in other parts of, of Asia increasingly, they think about public-private partnerships as institutions where you combine public ownership Right, in public direction, here's what we want, but we own this, and private discipline, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very different hybrid model than we have in the United States. And increasingly, I think it's coming, you know, finally to be understood and maybe adapted to our culture and our system. Um, you know, the U.S. is a very parochial place. I mean, we're the most diverse country in the history of the world, and we don't get out much. So, you know, we're so big 
that we think internally a lot, you know. So when you go to a place and you, and, you, know, you sit with business leaders, political leaders, philanthropic leaders, and they'll say, who's doing the best on the transit in the United States? And I said, why would you possibly stop at our border? You know, if you really want to think about who's doing the best in transit, get on a plane and go to Denmark, right? So actually last year I was part of a group that hosted 125 business leaders from Denver in Copenhagen. You know, so that they can see what this Copenhagen City and Port Development Corporation had achieved. They can see the Danish approach to affordable housing, which is quite different than the United States. And they begin to think about how to adapt back to what is a, a great uh, American city. So here's really the challenge we have before us, irrespective of who we can select. Um, you know, and obviously we have to get back to some modicum of sanity this country. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, we're giving the talk on, I guess, the first day of impeachment trial on the Senate. We've, we've got to build a nation of problem solvers. Uh, we, we, and we have to do that bottom up. And we have to recognize that cities and metropolitan areas are going to be the vanguard of problem solving in the 21st century. And we have to think through the kind of institutional architecture and the financing structure for what is a radically different system than what we, what we had in the 20th century. Here's a minor problem. Um, for every Pittsburgh, we have dozens of cities that subsidize consumption as opposed to financing and capitalizing innovation. You know, every couple you know, months you hear about gazillionaire going to the city and saying, I'm moving my sports team. You know, usually three cities over. Give me X amount of public subsidy to rebuild the stadium that, oh, by the way, we haven't made the debt off from two decades ago. That's what we do a lot in the U.S. We don't really think about the public enabling innovation and getting a piece of, of the innovation dividend. Every Indianapolis, look, we've got, we, we like to say in the U.S., we do work together. But Indianapolis has perfected a formal structure for doing that and for unlocking private and civic capital so that they are resourced to do this in a professional way. And for every Copenhagen, obviously, we have thousands of municipalities in the U.S. that are leaving a lot of value off the table, um, including New York City. If you go to New York City today and you go to Hudson Yards, right? You go to the High Line. The High Line was subsidized by the government. It created an enormous value in the private sector. What portion of that redounded to the benefit of the public? A bit. Taxes, real estate taxes, sales taxes, but nothing approximating the kind of benefit that accrued to private owners. There, there's a different public-private compact in other parts of the world than we have in this country. We need to think that through, and we need to begin to design and implement it at the local level. So, you know, when you think about Baltimore um, and you think about your position in the 21st century, Baltimore is a curious place because if you're an outsider coming here, you, you think about your assets a lot. They're very visible, you know, um, whether it's your physical assets, historic infrastructure, you know, what, what Johns Hopkins has, what some of the other universities have, the sectors you're involved in. So, you know, from an outsider looking at Baltimore, you have like incredible assets and competitive advantages. 
But Baltimore tends, Baltimoreans, I suppose, are that term. You know, there is a sense of devaluing a lot of what is really substantial from an outsider's perspective, and not investing as much as perhaps um, other places like Indianapolis might do. You know, who's in charge? The U.S. is a network system, not just a federal republic. It's governed by a network of public, private, civic, university, community, et cetera, et cetera. We don't operate really like the rest of the world. Um, and so a whole bunch of different players actually have the ability uh, to affect change in the U.S. And in other places, it's really more just led by the public sector. Here, it's more distributed. That gives us some real advantages in this century. And then where's your power? You know, what, what kind of power do local institutions have that we rethink, particularly the value of public assets, um, if we rethink the ability to finance um, what we want? What do we want? We want affordable housing. We want you know, businesses increasingly owned by people of color. We want to start up and scale up. We want innovation to be commercialized. A lot of that will be done by institutions that have the capacity, capital, and community standing to do things in a radically different way than we did in the 20th century. Um, so I think the US is on the verge of transitioning to a, to a different system, essentially. Again, part of it has been accelerated by the national government basically having a lobotomy and you know, not really being capable of intentionality and purpose. I mean, if anyone wants to try to run a, a country without a national government, hey, come to the United States. You know? I mean, that, that's what we're doing, right? But what we have here is an inherent strength, right? Uh, which is because, you know, from de Tocqueville, you know, in the early part of the 19th century, I think there was a recognition that the U.S. just operates a bit differently than the rest of the world uh, in terms of its, its ability to move across sectors. Uh, in, in a seamless and, and, and creative way. So I think we're building a different class of city and metropolitan leaders. Um, you know, and I, I think this city's doing quite a bit of it, actually. Um, you know, there's this new federal tax incentive called Opportunity Zones. Um, it gives you know, wealthy individuals, corporations that have capital gains the ability, you know, to defer, reduce, or even eliminate their capital gains taxes if they invest in areas with high poverty. Um, you, you've been recognized as a city that has got more purpose to this. I mean, you've got an Opportunity Zone coordinator at the Baltimore Development Corporation. Ross Baird's here and Bill Streeter's here are using Opportunity Zone equity to renovate your gorgeous train station, Penn Station, in addition to public subsidy from Amtrak and others. So you're doing a whole bunch of things in Baltimore that really are uh, sort of seen by the rest of the country as sort of leading edge um, innovations that can be adapted and tailored to them. But we've got to do this as a system in the US. You know, you know, good things, I don't know this is what, but the election goes well, this is not partisan. <laughs> we actually do return to Saturday uh, in the 2020 election. Someone comes into office that will govern without tweeting on a Saturday. That is every day. I mean, I, 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 it, it won't change the structural shift that has happened because of big, profound economic, social, and technological forces. That will not change. 
Hopefully we'll get a national government that will function with a little more effectiveness and efficiency and support of cities and metropolitan areas and invest in infrastructure and all those wonderful things. But the power in this country is at the local level uh, in ways that has not been understood for quite some time. So with that, I look forward to any comments, questions, criticism. Um, the new localism is here and it's not going away. Thank you. Since the 1970s, has had a community reinvestment act, 
It's had a homeowner's closure act. It, it tried to at least get the financial institutions um, to, to, to reinvest in many of these communities. But a lot of our capital doesn't come from depository institutions anymore. So community reinvestment act is critical, but only covers a portion of the financial system. So I think we're going to have to figure out a way, local and national, the states play a role, but a lot of this is really local and national. A to set some large visions for our cities. I mean, we're going to be majority minority in the 2040s. If we don't upgrade the skills and education of really what will be the majority of this country, and particularly focus on entrepreneurship, and this is what Ross has written a lot about in, in Innovation Blindspot, find new ways of financing business. Because unlike a lot of white families, there's, there's not a lot of uh, family wealth to build from. And we need different kind of financial products to really understand how to do this, uh, make it happen. So I, I actually, uh, Ross and I put out a paper um, a couple of months ago called Towards a System of Community Wealth. This is part of new localism. The tradition in the U.S. is to have community development. Let's, let's produce a lot of low-income rental housing in low-income neighborhoods. That doesn't build wealth. Builds a lot of housing units, maybe, possibly. It doesn't build wealth for anyone. So we need to shift our frame here in a radically different way uh, and begin to change the kind of finance focus that we have and begin to build a group of intermediaries again that have more capacity and capital to get this done. But if we don't set these, like Mike Bloomberg did the other day, really big aspirational goals for this country, and then have cities do what they do so well, which is collaborate across multiple sectors where the rubber hits the road. Uh, I think, you know, we're in for a tough bunch of decades. So we're gonna have to start it at this level, we have to change our aspirations, um, innovate on a whole bunch of financial products and so forth, and then if we get a national government back, perhaps they can then, we can reverse engineer federal policy to take the innovation to prevent it and move it up the scale. But, um, you know, we, we have to start here. We can't, you know, the man is not going to show for that. Just to go back to that question or that answer, um, earlier you mentioned how philanthropy had a great role in kind of setting these big sort of like goals yep. and making decisions. And so when you, when you talk about race, because a lot of times we're, we're going to be in majority minority cities all over the country, so what role does philanthropy have in creating wealth for the disenfranchised? when they, they've gotten really good at handouts to those folks, right. or you know, handouts really to the people who help those folks, people who start organizations to help them, but not necessarily helping the individual get to the next level. So what role do they have in this new localism? So I, you know, Ross and I write about a whole bunch of initiatives around the United States um, that are backed by philanthropy, um, where, I and mean, some of this is, it's so obvious once you start talking about this. It's absolutely ridiculous we have to do with this. But, you know, we have accelerators for technology, incubators for technology, all over the United States, right? It really sets us apart from the world. Every city you go to, 
around the university, around the companies, incubators, accelerators, angel money, seed money, other access to, to capital uh, for startups and scale-ups. That's on this side of the equation, technological innovation. You go to the next side of the equation, are we growing businesses owned by black and brown? We don't have any ecosystem, essentially. We have a couple set asides, usually when the government is doing a large procurement, a large development. But there's really no ecosystem. So we're going into the high schools, beginning to teach entrepreneurship, doing it through our community colleges, setting up accelerators or real estate, having our universities and hospitals buy local, hire local, right? And beginning to grow, um, you know, large numbers of black and brown owned business. I, so there is a playbook here. Um, it's so common sense. It's, it, again, it's quite remarkable. We haven't really done it. Um, Cleveland is doing it to some extent around Cleveland Circle University Hospital, Case Western. Philly's doing it to some extent around Drexel and Penn and Children's Hospital. You all are doing it to some extent. But we have to do this at scale. And the only institution that really has that kind of discretionary capital in the United States uh, are our philanthropies. So I, I think we need to, bottom line, I think the anchor institutions right, need to work hard for the cities in which they're anchored. That's the simple proposition, right? They don't pay taxes or they're removed from other opportunities. They have to work harder for the cities in which they're anchored. You have some great foundations in the city. So you've got the talent, they've got the smarts, they've got the sophistication, but we're going to have to both grow new kinds of philanthropic vehicles um, and we're also going to have to uh, uh, take our existing institutions and move them in, in another place. One last thing, and this is also borrowed from Ross. There's a two-pocket mentality uh, among wealthy institutions and wealthy families in the United States. Five percent is taken and invested in social need. The other 95 percent is basically invested in market returns. Well, usually through private equity, venture capital, a whole export wealth industry that we have. So the 95% usually leaves the city in which the wealth is generated, while the 5% goes back to social need. We're going to have to have more market investing locally. I mean, Baltimore has unbelievable assets. You don't need to invest in Silicon Valley to get the kind of returns, right? I mean, there, but there needs to be a way for uh, individuals, families, university endowments, philanthropic endowments, pension funds, to realize what's actually in their own backyard and begin to uh, to reinvest that scale. So, look, it's it's this is not a government program. I mean, we're not we're not going to reverse structural racism or what you're describing only through public sector programs in this country. We're not. We're going to need some kind of network governance along the lines of what I talked about in Indianapolis and elsewhere. But it's, it's, it's got to be serious business. And um, I think we're at the end of one system in the U.S. and we're at the beginning of another. So any place that embraces community wealth, right, and the kind of high road economic development and public asset deployment I described before, that's the way we get, you know, we make the 21st century work for you. Great question.
In Baltimore, we have huge amounts of vacant land, empty houses, yep. and a very fragmented property ownership structure um, in a very difficult time acquiring those properties from those that own, own those um, vacant lots. What have you seen in other cities and other countries uh, where eminent domain or government intervention has come in and actually assembled parcels that can be developed at scale? Because right now we're just, we just have certain pockets, but not enough to sort of begin that kind of rolling process you're talking about. Well, and again, I, I talk a lot about Northern Europe because it actually functions. I mean, they are globally prosperous, you know, uh, highly innovative economies, Helsinki, Stockholm, Copenhagen, Oslo, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, right? Germany. Um, like us, they have been through deindustrialization, like Copenhagen was. But they, they, they've managed to invest in the future, and particularly in the public sector's role. Some of these things cannot be, you know, delegated away. So if you go to, if you go to Denmark, um, basically everything's been digitalized, right? So if you want to know who owns a particular property, you know, go on the web. It's not a rocket science. <laughs> it's like easily transparent. Um, and, you know, in Denmark and Germany and Holland, uh, now Holland seems to like to call itself the Netherlands these days, so I never know what to say about it. What, what, what you see is just a level of public purpose around large-scale asset accumulation, which can then be put back into productive economic service. Now, that may mean a decade or two where it's more pop-up. I remember when I was in Denmark about six years ago, the military owned an island, the Danish military owned an island right in the middle of the harbor called Paper Island. So the military deeded it over to the city. The city was beginning to think through what do we want the future of this island to look like. Um, but instead of just leaving it fallow for seven years, they began to say, well, let's experiment with pop-ups you know, on this island. New food concepts. I mean, they were just beginning to have, you know, um, you know, truck vending and all the rest of it. So they began to say, let's just start this on the island, see what happens. But in seven years, we're going to transition over to a real functioning part of the Copenhagen economy. So there, there just is the ability to not just think about what is a different kind of use. First of all, know who owns what, right? Particularly the public sector. Understand value, understand how to grow value for the public. But then to experiment and innovate um, and act with some speed and alacrity, reduce friction in the marketplace. So, you know, we tend to think about these Northern European countries like cartoons, you know. Oh, they just tax everyone and, you know, um, safety net for, for, for all. Actually, they are probably the most sophisticated capitalist in the world. These are trading cities from 600 years ago. They're small countries. And yet they have figured out how to thrive and prosper. So we have to learn what they're doing. We have to spend more time thinking about some of the functioning Asian countries. We've got to get out of our bubble. You know, uh, this is a great country. I mean, we are highly distinguished. We're highly great. But my Lord, we have you know, disinvested in the public realm and our infrastructure. 
get our act together. Um, 20th century, that was a good run for the U.S. 21st century, oh, we're starting off a little slow here. So, um, so I, I think land and land disposition, this goes back to the Romans. I mean, actually, the digitalization system in Denmark goes back to the Romans. Um, we, we need to get our act together. So this should not be our... And this will be our final question of the evening. So one of the experiences that I've had in Baltimore is especially around moving around the various um, governmental and agencies, the you know the private sector, the anchor institutions, the philanthropic. You know, in the studies that you did, was there any particular poignant source of the impetus? Like who was actually or which, was there even a difference amongst the different cities of who was actually um, initiating, perpetuating, moving along, you know, these initiatives because there are, you know, some very high Jersey walls around mm -hmm. some of the, you know, initiatives that people take in Baltimore almost, you know, certainly I think to our detriment. And so I would be interested to know if you think that there's a particularly effective source at providing this initiative for a visit Baltimore. You know, it's an interesting question. I think the culture of these cities, more than who, the, the, the culture of these cities are cultures that reward action, not obstruction. I mean, they're very much, let's do it. And if someone comes in and says, let me define the 93 ways we can't do it, they go, okay, you can go to that room. <laughs> That's the other room. This is the doing room, okay? So the culture is very much pragmatic, practical, innovative, creative. And then it's like a relay race. Whoever has a pulse at any given time, you're in charge. Okay, you seem to know what you're doing. You take the baton, run around the lap a couple times, and then pass it on to the next person who has a pulse. Or maybe the two of you run together. They're not that heavy in a lot of these other places. If you know, it's a... 1960s kind of term, but if you know what I mean, they don't, they don't take this kind of question very seriously. They just sort of do it. And, you know, you look around. I remember going to one of the Pittsburgh philanthropies and saying, you know, sort of talking about a particular idea. And they said, you know, we're not really interested in that. You should go talk to this other foundation. And in most cities, that would have been the end of the conversation. He picked up the phone and called the other. Say, hey, you know, I'm sitting here talking about this thing. Um, this sounds like something you guys should do. And then and we just got on the phone and started talking about it. That's a place that works, right? So there's like almost two kinds of cities. You, and you know within literally 15 minutes, if you walk into a room, I don't care who you're with, community activist, union leader, elected official, head of philanthropy, whatever it is, and within the first five minutes of the conversation, they tell you why someone else is not doing something, you're in one kind of city. If you walk into another city, and, and whoever you talk to gets really excited talking about not what they're doing, but what someone else is doing, and someone else is investing in, you're in a different kind of city. So cities have cultures and characteristics that get built up over time. And if you're a one kind, if you're in, stuck in the old kind of grudge match, 
Bottom line, you just have to de-leadership to anyone who is a boss. And almost just ignore it. Because you're going to take slings and arrows from everyone. No one's going to be, you know, celebrating your success. They're just going to be beating the crap out of you. But, you know, that's the world in which we live. And I, if you do practical progress enough, and you show results, over time, the culture changes. It, it's just, particularly in a place that's divided by race, divided by class, God knows how many stupid decisions over how many decades. This is not easy, but that's what brings places back. And those are the stories, really. Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Copenhagen, obviously is a very different culture. They came back because people said, enough of the small stuff, and we're going to have to get our act together, because no one else has our back. No one else has our back. And so this is like a brutal lesson, but bottom line, you got enough smart people here, you got enough talent, you know, you've got an embarrassment of riches, you know, legacy of prior generations. Do it. I mean, just start choosing one thing to do, progress, next thing to do, do it. First, thank you so much for your illuminating talk. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.